Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Dare to Be Human podcast with Kat Coppett and Alex Timmis. In this first episode, we'll introduce ourselves and lay the foundation for what we'll be discussing over the course of this show. In this first episode, we talk a little bit about what is applied improv, about heightening your awareness of and stretching your performance options, the real lesson behind a famous experiment with marshmallows you may have heard of, and what it really means to be you. Stick around to the end of the episode. We have an improv exercise you could use at home that's all about stretching your performance options. Please rate, review, and share this podcast however you're listening to it. Track us down on social media, and be sure to check out our website, daretobehumanpodcast.com. Enjoy. of Dare to be Human. Here we are. Here we are. In the flesh, being human together. That's right. And in your ears somehow. Yeah. Via earbud or car radio or however you choose to listen to your your podcasts. We're very excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to be here and to be doing our first episode. So, Dare to be Human, what are we all about, Kat? Well, here's the premise that... We as human beings show up and we go about our lives doing things, and we do that in pretty limited, constrained ways. And that, in fact, there are many more options and uh, a much wider range of possibilities to us if we really dared to be fully ourselves and embrace all of the possibilities of being fully human. So this is, and this is something that we've got a, a little bit of experience with. Uh, Kat and I both work for, uh, they're kind of uh, intertwined companies. We work for Coppet and for a company called Mopco, the Mopco Improv Theater, named after uh, a certain Cat Coppet, the first The company. first one, <laughs> right. The second one, less so. Uh, <laughs> no, not so much. Your middle name is not Bucket or something. It's is not. It? No. What we do is, uh, you know, obviously in the theater portion, we are improvisers. We get up on stage uh, two to three times a week and perform in front of an audience improvised theater. We get suggestions from the audience and we make things up and we play different characters and invent songs and scenes spontaneously out of nothing, so to speak. With no pre-planning. No pre-planning. No script. No script and uh, no idea what's going to happen next. That's right. Yeah. And we take that attitude and we bring that into the the other business cop it cop it right so cop it is an applied improv organizational development company so we take traditional organizational development psychology training and development concepts and we mash them together with these concepts of improvisational theater and we help people and teams leaders and managers and uh, teams and full organizations uh, expand their range of performance options on their stages. So the Mop and Bucket Company, Mopco, mm-hmm. does that in a traditional performance way, and Copit 
does it in this applied way on other stages, if you will. Right. And that's starting to become uh, less and less a strange concept to people. Improv is slowly infiltrating businesses uh, and office buildings throughout the nation and the world uh, as people are starting to uh, kind of uh, catch on to this idea of people as performers, that we're all performers all the time, not just when we're on stage. Uh, you know, we don't have a script by our bed. We're always improvising. We're always inventing. What we believe is is improv is both the gym to kind of explore and work on those skills. Uh, it's also a, a laboratory for us to kind of use to experiment. experiment. And uh, it's uh, the lens through which we're going to talk about a lot of these different subjects on, on this podcast. Right. And, and think about how we might shift our mindsets or see things differently. Yeah. It's funny that you say that's not, it's not that weird a concept. Uh, we wrote our first book on applied improv in 2001 and back then it was a very strange mm -hmm. idea that you would use improv in business. And now, however many years later, the Wall Street Journal and is writing articles mm -hmm. about it and CNN and Forbes. I mean, these are the most traditional business publications are right. writing about using improv in business. So it's it's hardly even fringe, you know, let alone no. radical. <laughs> so it's an incredibly different world. Yeah. Uh, speaking of your book, I think that was a line in there that a, a, a client of yours brought up, you were pontificating in some way about something and they kind of interrupted you, uh, or at least uh, uh, yeah. my familiarity with it is they were like, yeah, but what about this concept that we're all performers all the time? And you're like, oh, uh, right. I was, right. Yeah. You know, I was very, it's funny. I, I myself was very insecure about this idea mm -hmm. of bringing performance language or the idea of improv in. So I was using all of my you know, good academic research language and serious organizational psychology and development language and making good, solid arguments for why we should be using improv. Mm -hmm. And they, they lobbed me this, well, yeah, that all sounds great, but what about just this idea that right. we're just all performers <laughs> performing all the time, which I later learned was a, a wonderful line that they had gotten from our colleague, Kathy, Kathy Salem. Oh, okay. From the... Who we will quote and will probably be a guest on our show at some point. <laughs> Um, and I was like, oh, right. It it was, uh, yeah, that too. Yes, sure, of course. <laughs> also that, yes. It was one of the uh, very many times over the years that our clients have pushed our work forward and pulled us ahead in recognizing the application of what we do on stage mm -hmm. and how resonant it is for them. The concept, uh, the concept here is... The stage and improv is this space that we've given ourselves permission to, I can get on stage, and as part of the, the concept of improv is, I don't know what's going to happen in this scene. I'm standing on stage with this person with maybe a, a couple of bent wood chairs, and we're going to get a word, and we're going to launch into a new reality in which I might be a baker, or a doctor, or a space alien, or a seven-legged octopus, or, or who knows? I don't know what I'm going to have to be, but the concept is I'm going to com commit to it fully. And I know that within me is the performance of the seven-legged octopus or the performance of the, the space Martian or the performance of, of surgeon or whatever. And uh, that I can, that those are all within me and I can move between them fluidly. But then outside of the stage, there are all these pressures and, and different things that keep us feeling like we have to uh, keep a certain performance going all the time or that there's something, there is the performance of me 
that has to be going on all the time. And I think that's what we want to examine in this first episode is just uh, kind of this course concept uh, that was pointed out to you in that boardroom so long ago. You are more than whatever you think people say that you have to be. And that we see ourselves at. You know, this brings up the concept when we talk to people about this of what even is your authentic self? Because right. as soon as you start to say we're performers or we're going to help you through theater or improv expand your range of options, often people will say, wait, are you telling me I should be acting or right. are you saying that I should be inauthentic? Mm -hmm. And in fact, well, there are a, a number of ways to get at that. But the first is to say, yes, we're asking you to, to step outside of whatever habitual performances you are doing that you are comfortable in and grow and stretch that. Mm -hmm. But that's different from being inauthentic, right? right? <laughs> and, and, and one way to look at that is if you actually think about the authentic ways you are in the world and how different they are from one moment to the next, it's weird that we think there is one authentic self that right. we have. All these uh, the examples I think of in, in terms of like, uh, like, farcical comedies and things like that when the the two groups of friends of this one person now have to mix together you know in that like oh i'm <laughs> i'm one way with this group of friends but i'm different with another group of friends and i'm that i'm different around my parents right. or i'm different around in i'm a different person when i'm at school or at work i act a little differently than i do you know with my best friend in the world than i do with you know my boss at the office we experience them and we do them all the time but there might not be this awareness that that's a performance choice that you're putting on and at any moment you could change those uh, we'll talk about a little later in the episode, most of that reality is coming from externally and not internally. And you can realize that these are all personal choices and performances that you're you're putting on. Right. And there, so I think that what what we're curious about exploring and giving to people, what we'd what we'd love to, what we hope to be giving to our clients and we hope to be giving to our listeners are really two things. One is an expanded awareness of the choices that we make mm -hmm. and the impact that they have. So how can I get better at being conscious of how I'm showing up and what the impact is that it's having, whether it's the impact that it's aligned with what I want or not? And then secondly, how do I expand my performance range right. so that I'm not just doing the same things that I do out of fear or out of this is what's appropriate or this is how I'm supposed to behave because I'm a girl or because I'm an attorney or because I'm, I don't know, a wife or right. whatever it is I am. Or maybe an expert on South Korea. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Many of you, I think because it was such a firestorm on, on the internet, Almost everyone we, we assume is aware, but it was a, this gentleman named Robert E. Kelly, and he's a political science professor at, uh, uh, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, Pusan National University in South Korea. And uh, he was giving uh, an interview of, you know, things were happening in, in North Korea, uh, I think, or, or I think actually what just happened was the, uh, the impeachment of the, the president there in South Korea. So he's there, you know, giving the, the hot take on BBC. <clears throat> Beautiful physical comedy. This man's giving an interview. Suddenly, his little daughter struts in is the best way to describe it. But just strutting, you know, arms like just chugging along through the air. She's just like king of the world walking to this room. And then after that, the 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 you can see the the man is embarrassed. He's literally like Heismaning 
his little daughter holding her to the side. And then next comes this next little baby in the, the bounce around little cart. The wheelie <laughs> the walker. wheelie walker, as he called it. And comes in. And then finally the wife runs in, drags them all out. And that's like, kind of the end of the clip. tears in like this tears fantastic, in, like, like, uh, I was looking at all the internet comments, like Kramer. Like, everyone it's was like saying, a Kramer. <laughs> a Kramer moment, like flies into the room and pulls these kids out by the scruffs of their neck, basically. So it, it lit the internet up and there was all this different, you know, people just loving it. And then there was all these other, you know, all these assumptions, uh, particularly about, so it was his wife, uh, Chuna Kim, a lot of people assumed was maybe the nanny or something like that was actually his wife. This is a prime example of performance choice. And if you listen to, there's a, there's a post interview he gives as well with his two kids. And it, it was just watching and listening to him talk about it afterward. Because uh, he's on Skype, so he kind of has, as you know, there's that screen in the corner. Himself. He's got a rear view mirror, so he sees his daughter, the the the, the first kid, come in and knows what's going to happen. And he says his his thought was, "I'm going to try to push her behind my chair where there are toys that might distract toys her. Toys and books. Maybe she'll play. And perhaps I can keep up this, you know, uh, facade. facade of of calm and professionalism." And the BBC will cut the video for thirty or seconds for 30 until seconds. they cut it out. <laughs> cut me, cut the right. interview. But he had so many. He had an infinity of choices. Some of them wouldn't be good choices to make. But he also had an shut infinity, up, right? kid. <laughs> shut up, get out of here. You know, toss her to the side. That would have been. He would have been internet famous for a completely different reason. <laughs> right. But he could have. We uh, and we had some uh, students in one of our uh, courses the other day. We showed this video and talked to them. And one of the, the, the women in it, the young women in it, said instantly, like, what if he just picked up the kid and put it on his lap? And it's like, oh, here's my kid, yeah. Marion. <laughs> hey. It's Marion. Hey. Say hi. And then just kept going on. How different of a performance yeah. would that have been? And it was such yeah. an easy choice that he even talks about that he felt the pressure of, I just have to get through this. I just have to put on a brave face. I can save this somehow. And, like, and didn't he say, he said... What I was concerned about was that this would end my relationship with CNN. So the story in his head was there is this one appropriate performance Mm -hmm. of, you know, stiff, serious expert that sits this way and talks this way Mm -hmm. and certainly doesn't have any children, right? You know, certainly (laughs) never gets interrupted. There Mm -hmm. is no chaos. I'm not, you know, my, this authentic performance is totally different from authentic performance of loving, playful father. Right, so those are separate, and I I can't you know I can't shift from that. If I do, I will, you know, everything will be ruined, and CNN (laughs) will never call me as an expert again. Because, right? I mean, you, what? What's a fascinating story that we make up about that? Right, that he was he was making all these assumptions about what the situation and how other people were perceiving it in this moment of not, um, oh, here's this father who works at home. And, oh, you know, the daughter has wandered in. I guess the story was they Skype a lot with the grandparents. So she was strutting in because, like, grandma and grandpa on the Skype. Here I come, you know. <laughs> he decided that <laughs> I'm going to block that energy of of uh, fun-loving young daughter coming in to check out what's going on and push her behind a chair rather than, like, oh, you know what? Here she is. So, you know, wave hi to the nice BBC man. <laughs> so here, So here are the things that are the kinds of things that are really mm-hmm. fascinating to me about that, that I, that we will love to explore through this podcast. One is the difference between the performance we're intending and the way it's perceived by others. So what are the choices we make 
and, and the impact that they have. Because clearly what he wanted to be portraying and the way it was perceived by the world were two very different things. He would have made a different choice if he'd known how it would have been perceived. Right. Secondly, what are the stories we make up in our heads that limit our options or our choices that we feel are available to us in mm -hmm. any given moment? Either because we just don't think to make to think about the choices we're making or because we set limits around ourselves because culturally this is the way it's supposed to be or because we tell stories out of fear you know what are the things that limit us and how do we limit ourselves and then thirdly like how do we get better at how do we build the skills and muscles and mindsets to as those things start to happen right as we field those curveballs, right. right? You know, we get better in the moment at flexing with them and feeling mm -hmm. like, how do I, in improv parlance, how do I accept the offers, the unexpected offers as they're coming and build with them as opposed to, as you were just saying, block them. Right. Like those are the kinds of things that we want to start to look at and explore. What we believe, I think, and I had an experience with it myself, um, when I was I was talking to someone about a, a present a presentation skills course that we 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 give, and they had that same misgivings about what I was saying that you kind of expressed earlier of like, well, aren't you telling me to be inauthentic? One of the things we would like to talk about in this episode first is that the the concept of of an authentic you uh, might not really exist. Same as in the space of the the improv stage that we give ourselves permission there to be any number of different things and flex ourselves in, in any number of different ways, there are it's this kind of thing of permission that we we have either feel like our uh, we cannot give ourselves or that outside forces uh, deny us from from being able to explore and and making different choices in that moment, even if we're aware of the thing that I'm doing right now is maybe not the most effective or the best thing that I can do in the moment, but I'm, I'm trapped. I can't change it. We, in fact, sometimes um, trap ourselves in, in, in believing that uh, these, these external factors somehow determine who we are and who we're going to be, and that, uh, that reinforces itself, that somehow that uh, personality is destiny in some way. Or that you know your performance is destiny, and that you can't change it. And in fact, sometimes when it's brought up, you will in fact change your performance. There's all sorts of research on what what's called the um, the stereotype threat, which is that we get ideas about what we're supposed to be, just not just individually, but as a, a type of person. So women are told through all sorts of cultural signals that they're not supposed to be good at math. I hope this is changing. Like I hope I, you know, I hope so my 13 year old daughter, I hope doesn't have this. I certainly had it much less than my, my mother mm -hmm. uh, is a very, very smart woman. She's a, an English, she's a writing teacher. She's been a writing teacher for 20 years. She got 800 on her GREs and 250 on her math on her English, 800 on her English, mm -hmm. 250 on math, because wow. she just had this idea in her head she was bad at math. Mm -hmm. um, since my father died, she was in her mid-70s when my father died, and she now takes care of all of the finances after <laughs> a life of doing 
like not even balancing her checkbook right. because she decided she was bad at this. But the studies say when um, women checked the gender box on their advanced placement exams at the beginning of the test, their scores were significantly lower than when they did it after they took the test. So simply, and there are a whole bunch of studies that show this, that very, very simple reminders of stereotype, something that aligns with a stereotype can affect performance. So like women do worse on math when they're reminded that they're women. Mm -hmm. There are other, other things around racial stereotype that if you're reminded of it. So, um, so I just want to, I just want to say that again, <laughs> more clearly when women were asked to check a gender box, just check a box before they took their advanced placement calculus test. I think it was the advanced placement calculus test. They did worse, significantly worse on the calculus test as opposed to when they checked the box after they'd taken the exam. So just reminding them that they were in. That's insane. Right. <laughs> All it takes is checking a box, one little, two little motions with a pen, and your, your math scores are plummeting. Right? So imagine what that means for us in terms of how we limit how, and when I say we, I mean, you know, collectively, societally, and also individually, how we limit our own performance range in terms of how we show up when, when we talk about using the mindsets and tools and activities and principles of improv, what improvisers practice, what we do is say, how do we get better at showing up in a situation and not limiting and not limiting the characters we play, the w stories we tell, the ways we respond to things that are unexpected. How do we get better at being more courageous and more varied and less uh, rote in how we respond? And if life is just one big improvisational scene, how, why not translate those skills you know, and that's those strengths and that courage to real life from the state. That I forget, I was reading something about the woman that invented the Myers Briggs test. You know, she she called herself like an introverted, intuitive, feeling, perceiving person, an INFP, like the Myers Briggs test. <laughs> Cat uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> mouthing a, a, a word under her breath. Uh, <laughs> that she even she limited herself to i'm described by four letters is it, it just and I, I'm, I'm predictive now is is what it is right is it's us trying to to make these these people in our lives that they are predictable and follow some certain path because they have a fixed personality there's some right. kind of fixed being in there that will act in predictive ways because of how i've interacted with them and it's very comfortable to us, right? Those personality tests, uh, the word that I mouthed started with bull and ended with shit, <laughs> um, just to be clear. Uh, like those, those, and, and I'm sure that I, that is a provocative thing to say, but I will say it a lot in this <laughs> podcast, right? Those the personality tests are uh, big business because they are very comforting to us. It's hugely comforting to us to say, I can identify you and put you in a box mm -hmm. it is very comforting to for us to say i know i understand myself i want to know my horoscope mm -hmm. i want to 
be able to have an re external reason for why I am the way I am. I want to read in the paper every day how my day is going to go and how I should be, right? But it's not, none of it's true. It's all just stories, right? All the research on those personality tests are that they're, uh, a, that horoscopes and the personality tests are have the same construct validity, which is not. And <laughs> write me your letters. Come on, people, engage. We write, uh, and um, that in fact, in fact, there's all there's a whole bunch of psychologists who are saying that even the construct of personality itself may not be a real thing, that it's socially constructed and that it's, as you've sort of been alluding to, more about this agreement that we have that in this context, right, we tend to behave in context in a certain way with certain people we have these kind of agreed upon and we tend to improvise the same scene over and over again right. because it's comfortable or habitual or we've been programmed to be that way. But that it's not actually anything innate. But for example, I'll give you an example. Yeah. So uh, um, Walter Michelle, the psychologist who did the marshmallow test. So a lot of our listeners probably know the marshmallow test. The marshmallow test is was this very famous test. I think it was made famous on 60 Minutes or yeah. CNN. Or, they did a piece on it. became all of a sudden everybody's favorite thing. It was a test that they did with four-year-old kids where they put the marshmallows on the table and they said, if you, they said to the kids, I'm going to go out of the room for 10 minutes. If you wait, there's a marshmallow right there. If you wait till I come back, the longer you wait, the more marshmallows you have. If, if you wait till I come back, you can have two marshmallows or you can eat the one marshmallow now. But if you don't eat the marshmallow, right? And then they tracked, he did this with his right. kids class. And, and then they tracked these kids through the years that they were in grade school and beyond. And the kids who waited and delayed gratification were linked to better outcomes right. throughout their lives. That they were going to earn more money as adults and were going to be more more successful in their education. All sorts of, they all linked sorts all of sorts of things in terms of successful lives, well-being, all sorts of things. they couldn't wait 10 minutes for a... To, to being able to delay gratification. So this story got picked up, the marshmallow test, and was held by everyone as see there's this innate ability that's fixed when you're four years old that you if you have self-control and the ability to delay gratification you're going to be a successful person and if you can't delay gratification at the age of four you are doomed right to end up destitute and in prison um and just like last year in visibilia the podcast did an right. interview with him the story was about him which is how to how I discovered it, where he was said, in essence, he said, they got it completely backwards. They got it completely wrong. It is not a personality trait that determined this. All I had to do was give a child one small instruction, mm -hmm. which was, instead of seeing the marshmallows as real marshmallows, just imagine that it's a picture of a marshmallow and when I said that to the child, they were able to indefinitely delay gratification right. and not wait. eat the marshmallow. They, they could, could wait. wait forever. Right. Way beyond the 10-minute like time limit. 10, 20 times. Right. So it's not a personality issue. It was just a piece of information, a little bit of coaching that they needed about how to shift their mindset. Hello. I mean, that's the opposite of right? it's an innate personality thing. It's like they just need a little bit of support, a little bit of coaching, maybe the kind of coaching or support that... Um, 
socioeconomically an upper middle class kid might get that a you know poor kid might not I mean whatever right this whole idea of personality or this is who you are authentically mm -hmm. imagine if we just give you like here's a principle from improv or here's a little activity to do or here's a little way of changing your mindset about what it means to be authentically you or how about we teach you yes and or celebrating failure think about what it could open up to you like making the marshmallows a picture of marshmallows there's something so seductive about that whole idea of like there's this little test that my child can take and that I'll know whether or not they're going to be successful or or unsuccessful but then that there's the problem <laughs> then of now you're going to treat your child by the results of this test right that like oh well I know that my child Right. You know, has this willpower in them. So I know that she's capable of all these great things versus ah, my kid ate the That's right. marshmallow after one minute. So I guess I got That's a right. bum kid because it's uh, it's funny because I think of different situations in comedy that that we are a, we're sort of we're secretly aware of that, that power within us all the time, too. You see it in movies and different media of the person that goes to the new high school and reinvents themselves as the, the tough kid or, you know, whatever fantasies we might have. I know uh, at our, in our theater last night, I told a story about when I went to college of how the story was basically how I was going to reinvent myself through binge drinking, how I joined <laughs> a frat and, and thought I could, you know, change who I, yeah. I was going to be a different person that the, the, whoever yeah. I, I perceived myself as like, let me change my performance and I'll be this person now. Yeah. How'd that work out for you? <laughs> yeah. I yeah, got some stories out of it, obviously. But <laughs> yeah, the you know the the comedy is usually that <clears throat> that we are free to become that other person until we get caught by the person who knows the real us or whatever. But that's just another perform. That was the performance that they were aware of, right? That that person, you know, the same as you know that it might be weird if you're if a if a close friend of yours saw you in a you know you had to interact with them in an office setting or something. You're now around a boardroom and your your best pal is there or whatever, it might be a, it's suddenly a strange space to be in, right? Because now you're trying to, I have to or, both honor my performance that I usually have with my best friend, and now I have to also somehow honor the performance of boardroom me, right? Well, I mean, you know this, mm -hmm. because you suffer through working with us, right? <laughs> my Michael, Such my suffering. husband and I work together. We run this business together, and we're married, that's a weird thing to navigate, right? And and in some ways, it's lovely, right? That we have an environment where, and then we have an improv theater company and we have a consultancy. There are all sorts of environments with different kinds of performances that are called for at different times. You You have to shift the scene you're in often, and that's a weird thing to try to do because you're in a different scene in different times, and how does that work? And right. The, uh, the, the, there's the, the quote from uh, the Walt Whitman poem, Song of Myself. Uh, it's deep down in there somewhere. I think it's like the 51st stanza or something like that, but it's a pretty uh, well-known quote. It's all, you know, it's on different Instagram posts all over the place <laughs> in different fonts. And uh, it's, <laughs> <laughs> fonts. it says, yeah, it says, uh, as part of uh, Song of Myself, he says, do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. Yeah. Which kind of boils down what we're saying to you right now, right? Yeah, snap, snap, snap. So, you know, where's the where's my bongos? That's the the uncomfortableness, right? That we feel that we're violating some part of ourselves, uh, if and we feel like caught in the act, if you know, when that 
person who sees us perform a certain way sees us in this different light, in this different environment, that we feel like we've betrayed them somehow. And what we're saying is, it's all you. You're there in, in all those facets. And more. And, and you more. know, part of uh, Michael and I are both coaches, uh, in addition to, you know, the other way we engage in this work is right. through coaching. And one of the lovely things about coaching, and one of the things that's historically distinguished it from therapy, although I think those two worlds are merging, mm. is the idea that you you start from healthy and then you grow from there as opposed to having to fix people. But one of the lovely things that's nice about being the improv stuff or this performance work into coaching is to say, it doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be, when you start to think about it as a performance choice that you can make as opposed to years of therapy that you have to go through, right. you just go like, make a different performance choice. Yeah. Right. You just make a different choice. And you don't have to change your personality. Just, it's another part of you that's in there. Right. So if you haven't, not only don't you have to be consistent in the moment, you don't even have to be consistent with, as you were saying, what you were doing in middle school. Right. Right? Like, <laughs> frankly, you were just making it up in middle school. If right. you think back, you were deciding consciously, mm -hmm. like, who do I want to be? Right. And now I'm going to high school. I have another chance to consciously make a different choice. Different choice. Now I'm going to college. I have to make a different choice. Like right. at some point we think we don't get to do that anymore. Why the heck not? Why not? Yeah, that some somewhere in adulthood we we settle into some static version of of self somehow, right? Somewhere in there, you know, after college you you lock into the whoever, real me. the real the real Alex is now I've locked into it and I'm going to cruise on that until I'm dead. Unless, just, except that I get to, there, there's something about, I get to improve myself. Like right. self-improvement is okay. Right. But there's a container that I am, uh, I can't go too far. I can't stray too far from it. There's nothing keeping you from changing, uh, you know, at that moment of just ch making that choice to, to change that there's no, there's no locked in yeah. personality of, you know, uh, of deep, seated you that you can't try to to vary from i had a friend who said a colleague who said i'm gonna i'm really bad at remembering names so mm -hmm. and a, another colleague said okay well why don't you just perform as if you're good at remembering names i think my my colleague and mentor kathy right. Sillett, who's i said i will i will mention a lot and um, i think she said just perform as if you're good at remembering names and then she remembered names. Right. <laughs> because she was like, oh, this is a skill of mine. This is a talent of mine. So she paid attention to it and she focused on it and she became good at it. That you could, well, I, people don't know me as a, a, as a particularly creative, you know, silly person or something that I can't be, I can't go all out this Halloween or I don't know why I'm thinking of this specific example, but <laughs> there's, I can't. I'm not the type of person that makes my own costume just because all you have to do is make your own costume right. and you're that type of person. Right. And the, the pressure is always, well, what are, you know, people will think of me different, right? Cause that's the, the concept and the, the, the uncomfortable feeling is you're going to be throwing off other people's perception of the mm. pattern of behavior that they've perceived, which is what they've told you is your personality. Right. So, yeah. So to, sum it all up we are going to use the principles of improv to help people expand their awareness and their range as performers
to expand their awareness of their performance mm -hmm. uh, impact and expand their range of performance options using improv as uh, a gym, if you will, to exercise their muscles. Right. As a laboratory to try out and experiment with new performances and new ways of being and a lens through which to look at the world, maybe events in the world and things that people are talking about and see them in new and different ways. Many exciting guests and interviews talking about a different... nice list already. list building. Uh, you don't know it yet, but there soon phones will be ringing across the country inviting them on to be... Maybe it will human. be you. Maybe it will be you. We're going to, <laughs> we're going to, uh, we also are going to have tools and exercises for you to be able to implement at home, by yourself, with your teams, with your organizations. That's right. As you dare to be human. So, Alex, mm -hmm. in today's episode, we talked a lot about expanding our performance range. Yes. Here is a game to help you do that. Uh, here's what I'd like you to do. If you would tell us about your day mm -hmm. sometime this week, okay. pick a random day. The content of this activity is not really important, so pick something to, to pick talk anything. about. Okay. Got it? I got it. <laughs> I'm slowly, I'm turning into a, a, a cat dad. I have all these... I think okay awesome so you've got something to talk about like I say what mm -hmm. you're talking about is not important here what we're practicing is uh, expanding your expressive range telling your story in as many different ways as possible and what's going to happen is you're going to start telling your story and every now and then I'm going to shout out a direction okay. of a way for you to continue telling your story and you're going to tell your story in that new in that new okay way. all right so um, I have two cats, and they they wake me up, not my girlfriend and I. They wake me up every morning so that I could feed them, and it seems that their their methods have evolved. Ding, you are a football field away. So what's happening is the two of them have changed their methodology. It used to be the younger one that would wake me up all the time, and now the older one seems to be on in the game. They're kind of switching it out. Ding. You're speaking to a six-year-old. And um, so what, by methodology, I mean the way that they do it. So what happens is there's the, the little cat, the little Siamese cat, used to get up on me and, and scream in my face and try to wake me up. And now what happens is since that is, I, you used to just push her off and everything, now the older one jumps up because that's Ding. new to me. You're a drill sergeant. Because that's new to me, I enjoy the fact that this cat is in my bed because I don't usually have her there, which is nice. Which means that I pet her and am more willing to wake up and feed the cats rather than the younger one who is just annoying. Ding, you're in love. And, you know, when the two of them are there, working in tandem that way, just hurting me like a dumb animal, I just feel, feel used. Ding. You're a tiny mouse. And what happens is I, I get up and I, I take the two of them over to and, and feed them. And I know that I've, I've been taken advantage of, but I need to feed them. And, and I think 
what's going to happen is in another couple months, they'll switch it up again once I become tired of this method and, and it wears off. Finally, you're Oprah. So, what's going to happen is they're going to jump up on the bed and they're going to try a new method. And it's still going to wake me up and we say, you get some food. And you get some food. Everybody get some food. Yay, thank you very much. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs>